0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant.
1: And I'm Maddie Cassidy.
0: And today we're doing another review of our virtual goal sessions. But before we get into that, I wanna remind everybody to make sure you subscribe to Aquademia wherever you get your podcasts. So every time we release a new episode, it will be automatically downloaded to your device so you can listen to it whenever you want. And if you are on social, so are we. Follow us at Aquademia Pod. If you want to contact us, a few ways you can do that. Send us an email, podcast at aquaculturealliance.org, or you can find the contact us button located on aquaculturealliance.org. Go to the education tab. Halfway down, you'll see that button. It says contact us. It's in the Aquademia section.
1: Yeah, we want to hear from you. Any subject requests, guest requests, let us know. We want to hear it. Also, while you're doing all of these things, be sure to leave us a rating and review on whichever podcast platform you listen to us on if you enjoy what you're listening to.
0: That's right. And I will say up front, some of that information that we've given is probably going to change soon, but all of those websites and email addresses are going to forward to the new stuff, but we'll get to that In when, another episode. when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just, just be on the lookout for that. Um, so like I was saying... Today, this episode is another recap of a virtual goal session. If you've been listening to the show for a little while, you probably noticed that every time we've done a goal session this year, which have all been virtual in 2021, we've done a little bit of a preview and kind of given you a snippet of some of the, either one of the presentations or some of the panel discussions, and then giving you the resources to go and watch the full program on your own. But this virtual goal session was a big topic. It's all about, it's called feeling the heat what is seafood's role in mitigating the impacts of climate change?
1: And we thought that this topic was too important not to cover the entire live panel on the podcast. So lucky you, you're going to be getting the entire live panel discussion all about seafood's role in climate change.
0: That's right. So the speakers that are part of this live panel discussion are uh, Oyuma Dejong from Rabobank, David Hine from Land and Water Management, Eric Jensen from Selfa Arctic, Richard Newton from the University of Sterling and Dave Robb from Cargill Animal Health and Nutrition. And it was hosted or it was moderated by George Chamberlain, who is our president here. So this is the live panel discussion. Each of these speakers did give their own presentation, which you can go to the link in the show notes and watch all of those presentations and listen to everything that they had to say. But this was a pretty valuable discussion. There's some good stuff in here, some good questions and some good answers. So I hope you enjoy it and I hope you learned something.
1: And if you want to tune in live to future goal sessions, then check out the link in our show notes to become a member.
0: That's it. So enjoy this uh, panel discussion and we will talk to you next time. Ciao.
1: Bye.
2: Welcome to the Aquademia podcast.
0: Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately
1: need to eat more seafood.
3: This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are
2: unafraid. Academia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood.
3: Well, welcome to the panelists and let me thank David for that great presentation. Um, I especially uh, was uh, startled by your comment that uh, we've lost about half of soil organic carbon over the last two centuries, and we continue to lose it, but carbon farming is a way to restore it, and uh, farmers can actually be paid for sequestering carbon and improve their productivity, so really, really fascinating. Before we begin, let me recognize our sponsors for this event. We have six. That's Aquaterra, which produces the new seed, a source of highly unsaturated long-chain fatty acids. Debbie Seafoods, a very large shrimp producer in India, uh, integrated producer. Latrum Machinery, one of the world's largest producers of uh, shrimp processing equipment. Merck Animal Health. Uh, leader in animal health, and one who has uh, produced a series on animal welfare uh, educational modules. MOE, the world's largest salmon producer and uh, leader in innovation. And USEC, uh, the U.S. Soybean Export Council, which has developed the Sustainable Soy Assurance Protocol to certify U.S. soy. So thank you very much to our sponsors. Let me mention again that it's not too late to enter a question into the Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen, uh, and we'll direct those to our panel. But right now, we would like to ask you two polling questions. I believe you see those on your screen. The first is, what is your view of climate change? Uh, A, it's a hoax. B, it's a natural caused by human activity. C, it's anthropogenic, but the effects will be far in the future. And D, it's already underway and its severity depends on our response. Looking forward to your view on on climate change. And we should get those results um, in the next uh, minute or so and we'll feed those back to you. Um, While the audience is answering, let me just um, pose that question to the audience, uh, or rather to the panelists. And um, let's just go down the list in the order of those of you who presented. So Oyuma, uh, how would you answer that question? Uh, Do you think it's a hoax?
2: (laughs) Definitely not. And I think we can definitely uh, already feel uh, the effects of it nowadays. Um, I think, yeah, in terms of moving forward, uh, we just have to incorporate this into every aspect uh, of society pretty much. And I think coming from a finance um, background, I think uh, on our end, we need to work harder on incorporating this non-financial sustainability information into uh, the way we do financial accounting. Uh, but also in all loans and bonds that are issued to make sure that every uh, single investment that's done takes uh, the environment and also society into um, account. So I think a big factor here as well, uh, what I'd like to stress is transparency and disclosure, uh, because obviously without knowing the numbers, uh, you actually don't know how well companies are performing. So um, I think moving forward, transparency and disclosure is a very uh, and reporting as well are going to be the most important topics.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let me ask one more panelist, Eric, um, you made it pretty clear in your presentation that you're not a big advocate of burning diesel and you see that there's a need for sustainability improvement. So I take it that you don't think, um, climate change is a hoax either. Well,
4: uh, I try not to use any energy on this. Uh, this was a, it's closed in 1990, 1997 uh, in uh, Kyoto, and all these things. So, in one way, this is well. it's many ways to resist and uh, make the change, and uh, this is one of the uh, ways to make this all this uh, very strange thoughts about these things.
3: But everyone can see it. Yes, exactly. Um- I wonder if, while those results are being tabulated, I wonder if we could pull up our second polling question. There we are. So this question is, whose responsibility is it? Who is primarily responsible to mitigate emissions from seafood production? Is it uh, governments? Is it the NGOs? Is it the actual seafood production chain itself? Or is it consumers? Who do you think is primarily responsible for driving change in carbon emissions in the seafood sector? And once again, I'd like to come back to our panel. Um, I think, uh, Richard, you're next up. What do you think about that?
5: I thought you'd ask me that, George. Um, Yeah, well, I think there's no simple answer. I think, um, really, it's um, a mixture, really. I think, uh, ultimately, the collective action of consumers will make a large difference, but those need to be empowered to make good decisions. And if they don't have the information in front of them, then they're not going to make good decisions. So you need things like effective labelling and things like that needs to be provided by retailers, and that needs to be through evidence-based Coming through to science and filtering down and then you need to have the policies in place which should make sure that the retailers are putting that labeling on etc so it's uh it's a lot of pieces of the jigsaw needs to be put in place to to, to drive it through i think
3: yeah very good answer yeah uh, dave would you like to weigh in on that too yeah, well, i think i you. agree with Richard. Oh, which one <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry we have two, we have <laughs> two but uh, let me go with Dave Rob first and then David. Yeah.
6: Thanks, George. And, and then I think following on from Richard, we've all got our part to play in, in how we address this uh, from, from ourselves as consumers in, in this panel to our, our uh, with our industry hats on as well. We can all take, take our parts. And of course, we see governments increasingly uh, facilitating this through incentives to work with uh, reduction schemes and NGOs finding ways to, to develop and also holding us to account. I, I think it's a mixture of all of the, the issues that we brought in, uh, as Ayuma said as well, with transparency and um, being able to see and measure changes on the ground and show progress. So I think uh, we can all, all take a role and, and all consumers can take a role in this as well.
3: Perfect, yes. And David, let me ask you to wrap it up in this discussion. Yeah, thanks, George. Look, I think that that's true, that the, the, it takes all of those partners. And there's no question that having a critic, if you take them seriously, can contribute to your evolution and prevent some kind of long pathway that suddenly has a very sharp edge. But in the end, I think the industry's got to take responsibility for it and drive it because. It bears on the social license to operate, and that's really important that it understands that that's not a given. Thank you, thank you. Well, I I see that we have the results of the first poll, um, and it looks like, um, as expected, that uh, that final response that it's uh, it's. Uh, Already underway, and its severity depends on our response. Uh, was 94% of the audience. Um, uh, that we also had that it's a natural climate cycle, not caused by human activity, got 4% of the votes. And it's a hoax. Did get uh, one vote. So um, there's still there's still a uh, proportion of the population that that feels that it's not not real. Um, let's see if we have the results of the second poll yet. Uh, it's coming in right now and it looks like, um, 70% of the group voted that it's the seafood production chain that has the primary role. Um, about 20% thought it was governments, uh, 7% consumers and, um, NGOs. So as David uh, indicated in the end, and really all of the panelists, uh, every um, sector has a responsibility in this, but the seafood production sector is probably the main driver to make this happen. Okay. Well, I have in front of me. the first of the questions from the audience, and you're welcome to enter more questions as we go along, and we'll be happy to direct those to the audience, I mean, to the panelists. So um, let me begin with Oyuma, and Oyuma, this is a question from Lee Cocker, and he noted the initiatives uh, for green financing, and he wondered, if there was some sort of an international benchmark um, for the credentials for green financing, something similar to GSSI, the Global Sustainable Seafood Initiative that benchmarks certification standards, is there any um, benchmark for green financing? And I, I know you already mentioned the EU green bond standard and green taxonomy. Maybe those are the... Are the benchmarks? Um, so, um, what do you think?
2: Yeah, um, if if I may ask, if, I'm just not sure what he means with benchmark in this in this uh, context. But I think I'll just go with what I think it is. Um, indeed, uh, within the green financing <clears throat> space. The target is constantly moving so uh, especially because it's quite a nascent market uh, with the green bonds uh, for the first time being issued in 2012. Uh, Since 2012 we've seen green bonds, social bonds, sustainability bonds in the market. Uh, Recently we've also seen sustainability linked bonds which basically uh, measures the sustainability profile of an issuer instead of tracking uh, what types of specific investments are being made. Um, But within this market the yeah basically the 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 guiding principles are the green social and sustainability bond principles uh, set by the international capital market association they're basically guidelines on how issuers need to write up a framework in which they basically set out what types of investments they're going to do with the money um, and why these are sustainable Um, and on the other hand also what types of kpis they're choosing to measure their sustainability profile Um, but now the eu is also uh, as you probably aware uh, with the EU Sustainable Finance Action Plan, they're trying to uh, align this market further. Uh, Basically, the green bond principles are quite broad price process guidelines, so to say. Uh, So you've seen very different types of green bonds being issued. uh, But now the EU is setting, um, yeah, sort of a next uh, label in the market, which is called the EU Green Bond Standard, which asks issuers to do extra well, it asks issuers to fulfill extra requirements in order to, for them to uh, call their green bond an EU green bond, basically. Um, and this will basically also make it easier for investors because uh, as you can imagine, there's so many different types of green bonds issued. Um, sometimes it's hard to tell for investors what is really green. Uh, whereas now when you have this sort of yeah, overarching label, uh, which is called an EU green bond, um, it'll, make, yeah, it, it'll further standardize the market and also, Make the definitions that we use in the market um, more, yeah, mainstreamed and aligned, basically, uh, which will hopefully also make it easier for invest- investors to, uh, yeah, see what's really in those bonds and, uh, yeah. I hope that answers the question. Yeah.
3: No, that's a very comprehensive answer. I I recall from your presentation that one of the biggest concerns you mentioned toward the end is is greenwashing, you know, and and how mm-hmm. to avoid that and how to um, verify that uh, KPIs, uh, key performance indicators, are being met and and actually that the KPIs are challenging and aspirational. So I wanted to ask you um, if there is a role here for certification programs to play in um, validating conformance to uh, standards, especially to aspirational standards. as a way of validating KPIs for uh, green
2: green financing. Yes, definitely, I think so. Um, Within the KPI space, uh, yeah, you can indeed either set your own KPIs um, or you can say that you're going to have X percent of your uh, products certified. So basically, certification schemes are a great way to have a third party uh, basically verify what you're doing. Um, I think also on this verification part, you have, uh, for example, the science-based target initiative, uh, which basically helps companies set a, um, yeah, a climate an a, a, a emissions reduction path. Uh, because as you can imagine, within this KPI space, um, you can set any KPI. Uh, but as you rightfully point out, it's hard to tell if these KPIs are mater- material and actually ambitious. Um, so that's why I also think the, uh, the transparency part is very important. Um, and also, I think it's important for companies to start uh, disclosing their information in a standardized manner, because I think um, often when you have these uh, yeah, emission pathways, uh, when companies say, OK, we're going to be 100 um, percent climate neutral by 2050, uh, you can also become climate neutral by offsetting all your uh, emissions. So I think also in the messaging, um, everyone also needs to be critical uh, and yeah, really think about what does this mean? Uh, You know, climate neutral doesn't always mean that you've actually reduced your emissions because you can also just offset everything that you're not reducing. So I think it's, yeah, hand in hand with transparency and hand in hand with everyone staying critical um, and really, yeah, thinking about the messaging that's being done here. Um, But obviously the key thing is here to just have reliable um, data that everyone can check. Um, But yeah, indeed, to come back to your point, I think certification schemes are a great way for parties to get their their KPIs uh, verified.
3: Great, great, Oyuma. Uh, now I'd like to move to Eric. Eric, you've stirred up a lot of interest in the audience with uh, questions. Um, uh, several, uh, including Marcy, Marcy DeMiller, uh, and William Davies want to know when is this technology going to be available in other places? You know, there. Marcy wants to know when will it come to the U.S.? Uh, William Davies would like to know um, how can we implement this um, in the UK? And uh, there, there are other similar questions we'll get to. But maybe you could start with that. Is your focus has been Norway? Um, are you the only one doing this, or are there others like you, or uh, do you have um, uh, aspirations to extend your program outside of Norway?
4: Well, I have uh, been a boat builder for since 1971. So. Uh... And I have been asking the engine producers since 1997 when the Rio was, uh, can't you make something better than what you make today? And uh, they are still lazy. So uh, at least uh, at last I I started uh, uh, own company because uh, no one else did it. So uh, there is not many uh, doing this today, but uh, we know that the 5,000 vessels Sailing in the Norwegian uh, seafood industry, they can be rebuilt. You don't have to scrap uh, 5,000 vessels to make this. It's, uh, well, by principle, rather simple to reduce by 50%. 100% is, of course, something else. And as I I can see it today, uh, we have to reinvent fish farming, sustainable and responsible, it seems to to me like, it is like this, it's very less, uh, not very much conscious uh, about these things. We uh, uh, so so, uh, but uh, it is uh, simple, we will do our best from the 6th of September, 2021 to 6th of September, 2023 to make a technology shift so we stop with the pilots we stop we start with the making industry and we ha- shall have a, a, a technology shift so no one is thinking of installing a, a normal combustion engine in 2023 and uh, 24 months so uh, and then we are ready to come like a tsunami uh, all over the world and, and show this and i should be very happy to anyone inviting me uh, i can show i can uh, um, maybe deliver,
3: uh, whatever. Uh, the main thing is something happened. Mm-hmm. And there, there are a few other more detailed questions. One from Joseph Polinski is asking about the, the battery weight and the cargo capacity. And um, uh, in this case, can the, he's asking if the battery can replace ballast on the vessel. Kind of a detailed question do you, how do how important and, a, and another similar question is asking about batteries and what's the limiting um factor for batteries is there going to be enough rare earth uh, rare earth metals to develop these lithium and other other batteries
4: well to uh, the last thing first
3: i can just say that
4: of course Regarding sustainability, this uh, metal thing is—it's uh, something about the batteries, and uh, it uh, can be something uh, that uh, says that we should better go for uh, hydrogen fuel cells, maybe. Uh, but uh, but at the moment we are on batteries, and we have enough, and uh, so the, it's no problem to to get the battery. So to the boat building, I can just say that uh, to reinstall engine room uh, with batteries, with electric and fossil propulsion, with a separate uh, mounting of the hydraulic and the spooling pump, it is good possible. We have not done it many, many places and it is possible. But of course, it's a, it's a good question and uh, that
3: have to be considered every time. And then um, the final one of these, I'm sure there are others uh, down the list, but um, another one asks, hey, if um, electric-powered boats are possible, why aren't we making electric-powered tractors? So uh, what about that? Do you have any thoughts? Is that also happening? Is uh, our farm... Uh, Vehicles also going totally electric, or maybe that's a little bit out of your wheelhouse.
4: No, but we we know. I mean, the Norwegian government and the most of the governments all over the world, they have signed an agreement. We shall get by 50 percent, and they say the normal thing we have done now for many years is just uh, showing to other people: you shall do this, and you shall do that, and you, shall, I shall do nothing. This is the normal thing especially with the seafood because they always pointing to the to the production of meat uh, in the coast and all these things so my opinion is uh, about this is very very simple everyone has to do in the field you are working and this is the same thing for the tractors but uh, of course all these big companies they are extremely slow and unsustainable so someone have to kick their ass as mr elon musk has done so totally uh, regarding uh, uh, the cars and uh, so get the give us an elon musk also for the tractors and you will have totally new tractors in the world
3: yeah very true very true everybody has to do their part um richard let's move on to you Uh, There's a question here from Matt Thompson about the uh, feed fish equivalence ratio. And he mentions that uh, byproducts are often excluded from these calculations to encourage their use. But that, um, as you mentioned in your talk, it's it's becoming more and more important to make efficient use of byproducts in the circular economy. And so... Um, I believe in the feed fish equivalence factor, he mentions that, um, if, uh, uh, the factor is four or less then uh, byproducts can be used and not, um, mentioned in the calculations, but what do you see the role of, uh, byproducts in, um, in these calculations? Do you think it's appropriate to continue to exclude them or? How can we encourage their greater use in um in aquaculture feeds?
5: Sure. Yeah, um uh, historically um the fish in fish out ratio from which uh FFER derived uh, didn't include any byproducts in the calculation. That was all the going back twenty years or so. And that was purely to um incentivize the use of byproducts to replace forage fish as the, the marine ingredient source um and we've come quite a long way since then and there's some concern amongst some of the life cycle assessment lobby particularly that some of the byproducts aren't particularly sustainable either um, so it's quite a complex uh, area from my perspective i try and align the the FIFO calculations along with the life cycle assessment calculations. So the way we apportion the carbon footprint between the byproducts compared to the main product is we do it by a proportion of an e- economic value. So the co-product with the least economic value gets less of the carbon footprint share relatively. So that encourages the use of waste products because they have such a low economic value that they have therefore no embodied carbon or knowing embodied fish if you like so on that basis the use of byproducts is incentivized but not to the degree that you would do in the normal traditional fish in fish out ratios where it's given like, a free pass we see that um as a way to kind of um move the dial gradually rather than just keep it static so as the byproducts increase value then gradually increase their footprint and they'll increase their embodied fish but at the same time the main product your fillet will reduce it so it incentivizes process to add value to their byproducts and that's the way we, we work it out but actually within the vanguard I think that area is, is separate I'm focusing on the carbon footprint area and there's another vanguard which looks at um, particularly the aspects of feeds such as that responsible sourcing within the feeds. And that's being headed up by Neil Oxaloni, I believe, formerly of um, International Fish Mill Fisher Organization.
3: That's great. Yes. And um, Richard, there's another question about that Vanguard standard. Uh, do you have a sense of how the technical committee is coming along and when uh, when are the next milestones and any uh, plans for when that standard would be released and available to uh, feed manufacturers?
5: Sure, um, well, we have a great committee and they're very internationally based and uh, also give a good representation of the value chain as well. So include includes stakeholders from Europe, the Americas, Asia across um, feed production and processing. Also, academics and NGOs are included as well. So we have a very good cross-section of of voices within the committee. Um, Some of the people who are on the committee are busy supplying us with data that we can use to benchmark. um, They're from existing BAP-certified producers, so that we can benchmark where the current situation is with BAP standards. And that depends a little bit on some of the legal issues around non disclosures so that's held things up a little bit. But I'm hoping um, in, in the autumn we will have at least the salmon out for people to look at.
3: Perfect. Okay. Uh, let me move on to Dave. Um, Dave, there are a few questions here. Uh, one is uh, first of all, congratulations on the Cargill Sea Further program. Uh, Marcy DeMiller asks, um, are you involved all the way to the processing? I think you mentioned you go through harvest, and she's asking if you're at all looking at packaging, since packaging is also a, a, a big issue in terms of carbon emissions.
6: Thanks, George. And the the reason we stopped at harvesting is that's the point where we can see that we clearly affect we, we can affect what happens to the fish footprint through feed, so in combination with our customers, the farmers, um, during the life of the fish, we can affect that. Once the fish goes into processing um, and, and beyond, so many things can happen to that fish in terms of how it's used, processed, packaged, and transported to to the ultimate consumer that it starts to go beyond our level of control. So we stopped the further commitment At the point of harvest but having developed that lower footprint fish to the point of harvest then you can work within the farming and processing and through to the retailers on how to reduce the next areas such as packaging uh, looking at um, also then bringing in other issues such as plastics and 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 the waste uh, control around plastics but also very importantly logistics to market uh, and and how the consumers receive the fish, whether as fresh, which might involve uh, very heavy uh, emitting logistics, or or whether as frozen, where there could be much lower emissions involved in future.
3: Mm-hmm. Another question was um, how. What you showed a slide where you depicted the retailers playing an important role. Um, retailers are very important in driving certification throughout the whole production chain. Do you see them also playing an important role in driving the reduction in carbon emissions?
6: Absolutely, George. I think the downstream aspect of the value chain is is critical to the success of these programs Uh, and not just retailers, but food service and and ultimately the consumer. they have to have a market which rewards these progressions and and starts to to penalize non-performers in this area. But we have to, as an industry, then be able to provide solutions for them at scale um, around the full seasons and around the year uh, and and into the future that will work and deliver on those as well. So it's it's a matter of trust through the value chain that this can be achieved. I think the really interesting thing is that many re- or more and more retailers are are making um bold climate change commitments against their brands and to do that they have to partner with their suppliers um, and in this case the seafood industry so this is where the market develops for low carbon footprint um, seafood we also have at the other end a bringing in the green financing sector to enable companies to invest in it but unless they have a market to to sell those uh, that seafood out the the investment doesn't will not work you've got to have a, a a a market that rewards that performance as well and that's really where the retailers in collaboration with their supply chains um building in, in their commitments and building that trust that's how we're going to uh, address this at scale
3: uh, thank you. We we have a, a couple uh, questions that are really could be combined, I think. Uh, William Davies and Karen Viverica uh, have both asked about soy. Soy from Brazil, if that industry continues to grow, will that affect the Amazon? And soy from the U.S., is it certified in some way? Um, I'm thinking that's either Richard or Dave. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, I guess... Dave, would you mind answering that one? Do you have any thoughts?
6: I can start on that and then probably Richard will fill in some some gaps as well. And I think it's a really good question. And, and we see that where soy um, is, is one of the best producers of protein um, from a plant on this planet, it's what incredibly efficient. It's not the soy plant that is the challenge with the respect to carbon emissions. It, it's the, the farming methodologies um and and particularly the land clearance. And so when you go to countries, particularly in Latin America where deforestation um, is is uh still um happening, whether it's legal or illegal, um, but it is is happening on the land that's then used for production of this soy, the way the carbon accounting methodology works is the land use change has to have happened at least 20 years before now, before that penalty is is removed. So, with recently cleared land in the last 20 years, soy can have a very large carbon footprint um, penalty against it. That benefits areas where cultivation, we've cleared our forest a long time ago um, in, in many parts of the world. And, and so we can benefit from those uh, lower footprints, not just of the soy production itself, but also the land use change part. And so, I think what we'll see in is, is getting to more granularity on suppliers, suppliers that can demonstrate that they don't have that land use penalty wherever they are in the world, including in Brazil, uh, Argentina and Paraguay, but also other countries then taking
5: advantage of this.
3: Great, great. Richard, did you have anything to add?
5: Uh, not much to that. I think um, it's a pretty comprehensive answer. The only thing I'd add to it is that more of the soy that's being used by um, particularly BAP is certified. So that includes um, the reduction of clearance within the Amazon. So I think at the moment, the standard says that 50% of the soy has to be either certified or come from sources where you can prove that there's been no um, clearance within the last um, 20 years or so. And from our perspective within Vanguard, we plan to increase that up to 80% using the same metrics that we use within BAP as usual.
3: Exactly. The uh, round table on sustainable soy, the sustainable soy um, assurance uh, protocol in the U.S., and I believe there are other, other standards as well. Well, we're at the uh, end of the session, and I wanna thank the panelists. Once again, let me go around the horn. Oyuma did a great job of summarizing green financing and how that sector is growing and how there are new methods um, uh, to develop uh, KPIs and transparency. And uh, this this area of financing is really exploding big opportunities in that area. Uh, Eric uh, brought the audience to life with his talk on electrifying fishing vessels. I think everyone can see the need and the opportunity, both the short-term need with hybrid uh, engines that are a mix of electric and combustion engines, but ultimately totally uh, switching to uh, fuel cells and uh, hydrogen-driven, most likely, and that uh, Norway is moving ahead to put in a full sustainability program like that. Uh, uh, I believe it was called Seacoast. And then um, Richard discussed uh, the um, carbon footprint of um, feed ingredients and feeds in general, how they're measured and how a new uh, Vanguard program is being developed to help develop a standard so that uh, leading uh, fish feed and aquaculture producers can show they're in compliance with these more stringent um, carbon footprint measures. And Dave showed how that system could be applied in uh, throughout the value chain and how different aquaculture producing countries or producing producing sectors uh, measure up, and um, and how Cargill's See Further program is taking it all the way through. The production chain to harvest uh, beginning with salmon and then David uh, showed us about uh, taught us about carbon farming and how that is an opportunity to totally reverse the tables and change the dynamic of um, the the greatest greenhouse gas emissions coming from feed ingredients to actually having negative greenhouse gas emissions through sequestering of carbon into the soil. David, I apologize that we didn't have time to get to the questions for you, but we simply ran out of time. Thank you very much to all of our participants and to our sponsors, and we look forward to the next session of uh, GOLD, the virtual event in October, and we'll focus on green financing. Thank you.